Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to discuss our part two of our airway talks. We're going to talk about the assessment of an airway, and then we're going to talk about equipment. For today, we want to do part two of our airway discussion. So this will start out with the airway assessment. And this has several different assessment techniques that you'll use when you are an anesthesia provider. You'll probably do these very quickly. I remember in undergrad when we learned about all the different head-to-toe assessments, it was very clunky and took a lot of time. And then when you walk into a patient's room as an ICU nurse, you pretty much did the whole thing just uh, at a glance really quickly and you could combine a lot of these things. Some of these are specific tests that you need to do just to look at the ease of intubation and help you understand what kind of techniques you might use as you try to get an airway on these patients. The first thing you want to do is obviously you want to get some history want to know if they've ever had an invasive airway in the past that can give you some information as far as the ease of intubation. And then when you're actually looking at the physical features of this patient, there are several things that we want to look at. The first thing that you'll hear about is the malapati classification. This looks at the oropharynx and basically assesses the size of the tongue. This is important because it will help you understand how easily you'll be able to visualize the vocal cords. So in order to do the malampati assessment, you're going to have the patient sit upright at eye level and you want them to stick their tongue out. You don't want them to phonate. That is going to affect this assessment. So just stick your tongue out, no phonation. And when you look into the back of their mouth, you'll grade this class one through four. Something that you've probably heard is PUSH. So remember PUSH when you're thinking of the malampati. P stands for pillars, U stands for uvula, S stands for soft palate, and H stands for hard palate. As you go through the different classifications, if you remember PUSH, grade one, class one, excuse me, is where you see all four of these things. So P, you see the pillars, U, uvula, soft and hard palate. As you go towards class four, you will start to lose uh, these structures. So with class two, you will no longer see the pillars, but you will see the uvula soft and hard palate. Class three, you'll lose the uvula and you'll just see the soft and hard palate. And then class four, you'll just see the hard palate. So if you can remember that mnemonic push, you can uh, recall those classifications one through four. Yeah, as we're going through these assessments, the whole point of it is to estimate or have a educated guess as to how difficult an intubation is going to be. So as Tanner said, with the malampati, we're basically looking at the relative size of the tongue compared to the rest of the oral pharynx and how likely we are to be able to visualize the glottic opening. And so the malampati just gives us a, a rough estimate here of how difficult we think it's going to be. The other thing we want to look at when we are going to try to do a direct laryngoscopy is how well we're going to be able to move all the soft tissue aside and then give us a clear picture and view of that glottic structure and be able to intubate the patient. So these other assessments here are going to look at the submandibular space. And what the submandibular space is, is basically the space that we're going to have to move that soft tissue aside 
and then give us the appropriate amount of space to be able to intubate the patient. So that's why you want a bigger submandibular space because you have that extra space to move all that soft tissue aside. One of the easy ways we can assess for the size of the submandibular space is to measure the thyromental distance. And what this does is you have the patient close their mouth and tilt their head backwards to extend their chin in the upward direction. And you're going to measure from the tip of their chin or the, the mentum back to the thyroid cartilage. And you want at least six centimeters, which is on a typical person, about three finger breaths. So you can just stick three fingers up there. And if you can stick at least three fingers between the tip of their chin and this thyroid cartilage, you know you're going to have enough room in your submandibular space to adequately move that soft tissue aside. The other thing I want to talk about here is the upper lip bite test. This basically tells you how mobile the patient's mandible is. So what you're going to do is have the patient take their lower jaw and move it forward and try to bite their upper lip with their lower teeth. And again, like Tanner said with the classes for the Malampati score, this also has a class system one through three. One being they can bite above the upper lip. As long as they can get above the top level of their lip, that's a class one. If they can reach their lip, but they can't get above their lip, that's a class two. And if they can't even bite their upper lip, then it's a class three. And again, the importance of this is the idea that if they can move their mandible forward enough to be able to bite their upper lip, then we're going to be able to have enough mobility and enough space there to be able to visualize the glottic opening. And we should mention that when you're trying to do a direct laryngoscopy, you're trying to align three axes. So you're trying to align the oral, the pharyngeal, and the laryngeal axes. So the next thing we want to talk about is just the incisor gap. So to do this, you have a patient open their mouth, and what you want is about four centimeters between their incisors. And basically, just just gives you an idea of if you're going to be able to align those axes easily or not. If they have a smaller opening, then obviously you have less room to play with as you are trying to align those axes and get a clear view to the cords. Some literature says two to three finger breaths between incisors is a good way to measure it. Um, I mean, do what you will. I'm not sticking my fingers in between their incisors. The other one we want to talk about is the occipital joint mobility. And what this is measuring is basically their ability to go into the sniffing position. Sniffing position is their head tilted back in an extension position. And again, this is helpful to align those three axes. Something that you need to keep in mind, patients with rheumatoid arthritis, Down syndrome, even diabetes, obviously trauma, or if they've had radiation or surgical procedures in the neck area can have difficulty with this. And so those patients, you'll especially need to consider some other strategies for intubation. The last thing that we want to talk about is the Cormac score. And so this is something that you're not going to be able to assess preoperatively. This is something that when you're doing your direct laryngoscopy, you'll be able to see their glottic opening to varying degrees. Grade one is where you see everything. Grade two is where you only see the posterior part of the glottis. Grade three, you can only see the epiglottis. And then grade four, you can only see the soft palate. So again, this is something you only see with direct laryngoscopy. The only time you might know this before is if they were a difficult airway, possibly if they had uh, previous surgery and it was in their previous surgical notes. But again, this is something that you won't be able to assess for, but is important 
as you are trying to achieve that airway. Again, grade one, you can see their whole glottic opening through grade four, which is where you can only see their soft palate. So with the Malampati, the upper lip bite test, and the Cormac score, grade one is going to be your best case. And then as the numbers go higher is where you're going to have your uh, decreasing ability to get a DL. Great. So in summary here, these are all the things that we should look at preoperatively to determine the degree of difficulty we expect the intubation to be. So in our view, things that are going to cause a difficult intubation are going to be anything that would cause them to have a decreased mobility, whether that be in their mandible or even in their cervical neck. So as we talked about, that would be a decreased allanto-occipital joint mobility from your rheumatoid arthritis, Down syndrome, trauma, etc. If you have a small mandibular space, and the way we assess this is through our thyromental distance. And again, that's to just move all that soft tissue out of the way. That's why we care about that. Anything here that would cause a overbite or if their incisors are very long, this will also be an indicator of a difficult intubation. So next we want to talk about difficult mask ventilation and some of the things we can assess for ahead of time to predict if we're going to have difficulty with ventilating the patient from a mask standpoint. The first thing is age. Anybody over the age of 55, we're going to be more at risk. As their BMI increases, they're going to be more at risk. Obviously, if they have a beard, this risk will increase. If they have a lack of teeth, so you often see this in people with dentures that have their dentures out, they're not going to have that structural support around their mouth to hold that mask in place. Anybody with a history of sleep apnea or snoring, and then their malampati is if their malampati is up two or three or four, if they've had any type of radiation. Um, of course, the male gender, I feel like we always get slammed, but male gender is also a category. And then limited ability to protrude the mandible as well. Um, and then obviously, anytime you have a tumor or anything like that it would play into this as well. And some of these overlap between difficult intubation as well. Um, like for example, the tumor, if you have a tumor in your neck, that would also um, decrease your availability to intubate the patient. But uh, the big one, I think we're all probably used to, at least from working in the ICU with trying to put a CPAP or some type of mask on the patient is if they have facial hair or if they have a lack of teeth, uh, just because it's hard to create that perfect seal. Yeah. We had, I remember we had a patient one time who had this beard. He'd grown it for like 20 years or something. I mean, it was outrageous. And he came in, he needed, I think it was just like pulmonary edema or something, something where it gives him some Lasix and BiPAP and he'd be good. And we could not get a seal on him. We tried tegaderms and other things, couldn't get a seal. And so he actually opted to be intubated instead of have his beard shaved. And so then we intubated him. Then he was difficult to get extubated. And then I forget what procedure they had to do, but they had to do something. And we had to end up shaving his beard anyways, because his wife consented for some sort of uh, procedure. And I just remember like, oh man, when this dude wakes up, he's going to be <laughs> so mad at us. Yeah. I was like, I don't know what you do. But anyways, if you're going to the hospital, shave your beard off. It makes things difficult. The next thing we want to talk about is the specific types of equipment that you'll need. This is pretty broad topic. And there are things that I'm sure we're not aware of, or you may use in your facility but these are going to be the overall things that you need to know. 
when you're looking at these assessments, this tells you basically what your patient is going to look like and help you devise a strategy. Are you going to do an awake intubation? Are you going to try to do a regular induction? Are you going to try to do less invasive techniques? Uh, maybe go straight to a video laryngoscopy. So there's a lot of different techniques that you can use. And so let's go ahead and talk about some of these. First of all, the main thing you'll probably hear about is Macintosh versus Miller. So when you're talking about the blades, Macintosh is going to have a curve to the blade. It's supposed to follow the anatomy a little better. The Macintosh is said to have less trauma when you are intubating because it, again, follows their anatomy. The other big difference between the Mac and Miller is the location of the end of the blade when you are doing your DL. So the Macintosh, you are going to go right up into the vallecula, which is the space right before the epiglottis. And so you will get midline and then you'll kind of advance forward, but you're not going to get underneath the epiglottis. You're going to go right below that. There's a little space there. And then as you pull up, that's going to pull the epiglottis out of the way and you should be able to get your view. The Miller blade is straight and is a little bit smaller profile. And so this might be advantageous for people where, again, like we talked about with the incisor opening, if they have a smaller mouth opening or in pediatric patients, this blade you will place actually on the epiglottis. And so then it'll pull everything out of the way. Sometimes this can give you a better view since you're manually pulling all of that tissue out of the way instead of just causing it to occur kind of by like a lever maneuver with the Macintosh blade. But again, this has been noted to have a little more trauma associated with it since you are directly pulling that epiglottis out of the way. So the next thing we want to talk about are in the tracheal tubes. And in the tracheal tubes are sized according to their internal diameter and they're in half millimeter internal diameter increments. So oftentimes we use somewhere around the the 7.0, 8.0 range, depending on the adult that you're going to intubate. But there are some specific characteristics that we want to talk about with these tubes. The first thing is these endotracheal tubes are radiopaque, which allows us to take an x-ray and figure out exactly where we are at. The second aspect of the tube is that they're usually transparent. This allows us to visualize if we have anything inside the tube, any secretions, any water that's being condensed. You should start to see some fogging occur on the edge of the tube during exhalation. That's one of the ways you can determine if you are in the trachea. As they exhale, you should see that tube start to fog up. Additionally, these tubes have cuffs on the end of them. Some do not, but the ones that do, there are two different kinds. You can have a tube with a cuff that is a high volume, low pressure, or you can have a cuff that is a low volume, high pressure. Most of the tubes that we use have a high volume, low pressure cuff. And what this does is it prevents or at least limits the risk of ischemia that occurs to the trachea. So basically, if you can imagine, you're going to be filling up this cuff with air and it's going to put a lot of pressure on the walls of the trachea. And the higher the pressure that you have, the more likely you are to cut off any type of blood supply running along the trachea, as well as potential nerve damage as well. So in order to minimize the ischemic risk from these cuff pressures, we try to limit the pressure inside the cuff to less than 25 centimeters of water. And so we like to use this high volume, low pressure, simply because it limits the amount of ischemia that will occur. However, 
the lower pressure that we have, it allows for if there are if there are gastric contents that are being aspirated, it can slip down into the trachea around the sides of that cuff because we don't have as high a pressure. And then you can have aspiration occur. And the reason we have these cuffs is it allows us to be able to do a positive pressure ventilation because it minimizes the amount of air that is allowed to leak around the tube and back out of the patient rather than going down into the lungs. And so it helps create that more closed circuit environment and that we can do more positive pressure ventilation. Another thing I want to note with cuffs is if we're using nitrous in our anesthesia plan, nitrous can dissolve into the cuff and inflate the cuff even more and make the pressure even higher. And so throughout the the case, it's important to be mindful of the fact that your cuff pressure may increase if you're using nitrous. And obviously, the, the most accurate way is to be using a gauge to actually measure the pressure. Another part of the ET tube is what's called the Murphy's eye. So the Murphy's eye is a second opening at the tip of the tube that allows for air to pass back and forth in the event that the tip of the tube were to come pressed up against a a wall or some tissue or some secretions that would prevent air from passing through. So that's the nice thing about the Murphy's eye is that it's, it's almost like a second backup hole to allow air to come in and out. However, it is possible for instruments that are being passed through to get lodged or broken or stuck in this Murphy's eye. And then lastly, within the tracheal tubes, it's also important to note that there are multiple variations for different types of surgeries that you're going to be in. One of these is what we call an EVAC. So an EVAC has a subglottic suctioning connection so that you can suction the patient above the cuff. I know a lot of times when I was working in the ICU, every few hours we would take a small subglottic suctioning device and go down the back of their throat and suction up any secretions that were above that cuff. But the nice thing about these EVAC tubes is you basically have a lumen that goes directly to that area where you can suction out any secretions that would build up above that cuff. Another one is a microlaryngeal tube. Basically, this is a pediatric-sized tube with an adult length. And the advantage of this is it's long enough to intubate an adult patient, but its diameter is small enough that we can move it from side to side in the trachea. So if we're doing any type of airway surgeries that we would need to be working on one side of the trachea, we can use this tube and have the tube push to the opposite side in order to allow space for the surgeon to do whatever they're doing. Another one is a ray tube. A ray tube basically has the end that comes out of the patient's mouth has a, a twist and a bend that allows it to attach to the, the circuit to the ventilator at a different angle. And what this does is for any type of procedure that the surgeon may be working up by the patient's mouth, the tube won't be coming out of the mouth right at the surgeon's face, and it would give the surgeon the, the space to be able to operate. So again, it's just a, a weird kink or turn that allows the connection to be at a different angle. And there's many more variations to these tubes. We don't have time to go into all of them, but just know that there are variations to accommodate the surgery that is occurring if you're doing anything up by the mouth, if you're doing anything with a laser, et cetera. The next thing we want to talk about are oral and nasal airways. These will be a consideration if you're having a difficulty getting an airway. Also, if you have somebody who maybe is just sleepy and not protecting their airway, this is a good first step. This will basically displace your tongue and epiglottis. So as that kind of falls back and closes off your airway, these devices will keep that open. One that you should know, the Ovis sapien or the Williams oral airways both have the ability to fiber optically intubate through them. So those might be um, 
a good option if you have a difficult airway to one, maintain your airway and then be able to intubate through those airways. You want to make sure that these are measured correctly. If they are not, they can actually cause a more of an obstruction. And so measure from the corner of your mouth to your earlobe when you're doing the oral airway for the nasal airway, you'll want to do the earlobe to the nair. Make sure also if these patients have skull fractures, if they are pregnant, they have issues with coagulopathy, then you do not want to do nasal airways. The other thing you want to think about that's a little bit less invasive than actually intubating would be a laryngeal mask airway. And so these are devices, there's several different types of these, but basically it will sit right above the glottis and some of them have a cuff that you can actually inflate but basically what this will do is allow you to ventilate the patient without actually going through the cord. This would be a superglottic airway that you may also utilize if you're having a difficult intubation along with your oral airways. So there's different types of LMAs. You can have the Fastrake, ProSeal, Supreme, AirQ. Basically what these do, so the Fastrake allows you to actually intubate through it. The ProSeal and Supreme are able to actually inflate and allow you to give positive pressure ventilation through them. What's important about these is that they create some sort of cuff, kind of like your ET tube cuff, that will prevent gastric contents from coming in. So this is important that you have your LMA positioned appropriately because if you're not closing off the esophagus and, and they start to reflux or vomit, then you can get horrible aspiration very quickly. So the ProSeal and the Supreme are good options to, one, allow you to give positive pressure and also prevent against some aspiration. Make sure with the LMA that even though with some of these you can use a higher positive pressure ventilation, do not do a pressure higher than 30 centimeters of water for the ProSeal. And then a classic LMA, don't use more than 20 centimeters of water for the actual positive pressure ventilation. And then the cuff that you're inflating around the LMA, do not have that go higher than 60. And this is just to prevent any nerve injuries that can occur from higher pressure when you're creating that seal. So some of the nerve injuries that can occur are lingual, hypoglossal, and recurrent laryngeal nerves. So just know that as you're inflating these, these cuffs or doing positive pressure ventilation, just be mindful of the fact not to, to over inflate them or do too much positive pressure. The next thing we want to talk about is if you would have to do a video laryngoscopy rather than a direct laryngoscopy. So the advantage of doing a video is that you can have better visualization of the glottic opening for situations where you're having trouble aligning those three axes during your tracheal intubation. Let's say the patient has Down syndrome, they have a limited mouth opening, rheumatoid arthritis. These are all things that we talked about earlier that may limit the ability to have that neck be turned into the correct position, which we call the sniffing position, in order to align those three axes. And if that is the case, it may be better to do a video laryngoscopy. If you choose to do a fiber optic intubation, know that you can do either nasal or oral. The nasal form of, of a fiber optic intubation is usually easier from, from the oral, given the fact that the, the natural anatomy will help align your view with the glottic opening. And so it's usually easier to intubate fiber optically through the nasal route. But again, just when we're talking about the nasal versus oral airways, 
just know that if the patient has an increased risk of bleeding or they have any types of fractures in their face, just know that those would be contraindications to doing a nasal fiber optic intubation. Intubation tools through the nasal route will have a decrease in the gag reflex, and so you're not going to stimulate the patient as much. Usually with these fiber optic intubations, you, you might have the patient awake. And so if the patient's awake, we want to ensure that we give them enough topical anesthesia or nerve blocks to make it manageable for the patient. Different ways you can do this, you can either do spray, like numbing spray. Um, you can do a glossopharyngeal block. You can do a superior laryngeal nerve block or a recurrent laryngeal block. For time's sake, we won't go into the method of doing all these three, but just know that if you are going to be doing a awake fiber optic intubation, make sure to provide adequate analgesia prior to actually doing the procedure. The last thing we want to talk about is just your emergency techniques. And so this is in a cannot intubate, cannot ventilate situation. So remember that you'll want to either do a cricothyrotomy, you can try retrograde intubating these patients. Keep in mind that if you are not able to use the tools that we've talked about previously, hopefully you would have some sort of idea that this might be a difficult intubation to begin with and you'd have additional staff in the room before you needed to do these procedures. But just keep in mind that if these things fail, don't try to do the same thing over and over again. Keep moving down your algorithm and eventually you may need to do an invasive technique. Hopefully this is helpful. This is just a brief overview of things that we do to assess these patients and then also the varying tools that you can use to secure your airway. Again, keep in mind that if it is a difficult airway, make sure you have help in the room. Also make sure that you keep moving down the algorithm. Don't stay doing the same ineffective thing over and over. And hopefully we can be anesthesia providers that are proficient at securing the airway.